If you haven't already, would you please open your Bible now to John chapter 20. We will be, as David said, in verses 24 through 31 of John chapter 20. If you're using one of the Bibles that is under the seat back in front of you that we provide, you'll find today's text on page 590, so you can find it quickly, page 590. We're in chapter 20, so the big numbers are chapters, the small numbers are verses. Chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. In fact, if you're here and you're using one of those Bibles and you don't have a Bible, please take that Bible with you. We'd like you to keep it. Before I preach this sermon this morning, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the time that we have now, the time that in many ways our, our entire time together has been building up to. What could be better than hearing from you, God? So we do believe in the purpose of this time to hear the preaching of your word. We believe in the, the power of this time, many of us, because we have been changed in times like this. God, would you please come now and fill our minds with truth and stir our hearts with love for you and one another, and would you bow our wills to obey you? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Apostle John is wrapping up his account of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. In fact, this story that we have here today of doubting Thomas, it is the climax of John's book. The entire book builds and builds and builds to this final scene and then concludes with verses 30 and 31, which if you listen, sound like book-ending words. Listen to verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The end. But there's another chapter, isn't there? Those sound like book-ending words, and this is a story-ending story, but there's another chapter. So what about chapter 21? Well, some throughout history have been suspicious of this chapter, assuming that it was added later by some scribe, but actually it is more likely that chapter 21 is a sort of epilogue. If you've ever read a book and you've read at the end of the book, when the book is done, there's more material and it's called an epilogue. So it's like this. At the end of our text today, I believe that John is done telling his story. But he still has a couple loose ends that he wants to tie up. And that's chapter 21. You've seen this in movies, right? You've seen this in movies where the movie has 
come to an end. It has reached its climax, and you think the movie is over, and it fades to black. And sometimes you're there thinking, but what about that? And what about that? And then sometimes that movie fades back in, and it ties up a couple of those loose ends. That is chapter 21 of John's Gospel. But these verses, the verses that we're reading today, are the climactic end of John's Gospel. This story of doubting Thomas. Does that surprise you? That he ends this way. Let me say something else to make sure that we understand how significant John's choosing of this story to end with is. John, in in his gospel account, has been very selective in his telling the life of Jesus. In fact, all the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are all selective in their telling of the life of Jesus. They don't tell you everything that happened in his life. They are not, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, though they tell the story of Jesus, they are not an ordinary biography. They are not exhaustive looks at the life of Jesus. I mean, I have a biography uh, on Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it is two volumes. It's over a thousand pages. That's not what these gospel accounts are. The gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written more as, one author says, divine propaganda. These small, short books were designed to present people with only certain aspects of Jesus perfect, so not just the good and leave out the bad, only certain aspects of Jesus' perfect life and ministry intended to bring people to conviction and conversion. That's the point of these books. And so all of them are fairly short and brief. Well, remember this. Out of those four gospel accounts, John's is by far the most unique And John's is by far the most selective. He is more selective than any of the gospel writers when he decides what to tell about Jesus. In fact, one of the commentaries that I'm reading during this study pointed out to me this week that if you go through John's entire gospel from beginning to end, you realize that John only covers about 21 days in the life of Jesus. Throughout his 33-year life, John really comes in and focuses on events that happened on only 21 days of Jesus' life. So do the math. How selective is John being? Jesus lived about 33 years. My math isn't, never has been, 
very good. But I think that comes out to about 12,000 days. 33 years, 12,000 days. And John focuses in on only 21 of them. And of those 21 days, this is the event on one of those days that John chooses to end his gospel with. So are you with me? That's important. He is selective in what he decides to tell for the purpose, he tells us, to bring all of us to conviction and conversion, to know, to answer the question, who is Jesus? So as we read through this and think, because I invite all of you to think, don't just check out, don't just listen, but think about what we're saying here. As we read and as you think, this question should follow us. John, why are you ending with this story? Doubting Thomas. Really? Why end with that? So let's get started in verse 24. And as we read through these verses, I'm going to make five remarks about Thomas. So if you are taking notes, listen for these five comments. The first one is this. Number one, Thomas did not listen to the apostles. Thomas did not listen to the apostles. Look with me at verses 24 and 25 of chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, if you didn't already... Now you know where Thomas got his infamous nickname. Doubting Thomas. By this time, Jesus had already appeared to the other disciples, but Thomas was not there. The disciples, verse 25, look, the disciples told him what he missed. In fact, The tense of that verb told in the original language means they kept telling him throughout the week. They kept telling him what? Verse 25, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas did not listen to the apostles. In fact, there's something else to see in these verses that prompts my second comment about Thomas. Number two, Thomas refused to believe unless certain conditions were met. So Thomas did not listen to the apostles. In fact, Thomas refused to believe unless certain conditions were met. I mean, look at the end of verse 25. I will never believe unless, and here's his conditions that were stated right before that. Thomas says, I will never believe unless 
I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. If I don't see it, I'm not going to believe it. I will never believe it, Thomas says. So Thomas requires here evidence. I spent the first year of college in Joplin, Missouri. If you're from California, you say Missouri. If you're from Missouri, you say Missouri. And if you're me, after living there a year, you say misery. (laughs) So I came back. But one of the things I noticed after I'd been there a short time is I looked around the license plates of cars and they would typically have something either on the license plate or around the license plate that would say, Missouri, the show-me state. And the reason we think that Missouri is known as the show-me state is because of a little speech that a congressman from Missouri gave in the late 1800s. His name was Willard Vandiver, and in 1899... He declared this in a meeting of Congress. I come from a state that raises corn and cotton, cockleburs and Democrats, and frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri, and you've got to show me. So that describes Thomas. Thomas is not gullible, And Thomas is a guy who is unwilling to believe something unless you give him adequate evidence. And his condition, right, his required sign is to see and to touch. So that's what he says. Unless I see him, not just see him, unless I touch him, I will never believe. So that's Thomas. So what happens next? Let's look at verse 26 and 27. Eight days later, so that's the next Sunday night. So the way Jews would count their calendar, they would count the day you were on. So eight days later, if it was from a Sunday, would be the next Sunday. So it's the next first day of the week. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Does that sound familiar? Jesus is going to come to Thomas exactly the way he came to the other disciples. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and Put out your hand and place it in my side. Now, there there is a rebuke from Jesus to Thomas here. Look with me at the end of verse 27. I didn't read it yet. At the end of verse 27, Jesus says, Do not disbelieve, but believe. And look at the beginning, down in verse 29, at the beginning, Jesus will say, have you believed 
because you have seen me? So both of those statements are saying from Jesus to Thomas, you should have believed. You should have believed. You should have listened to the apostles. You should not have laid out conditions and demanded evidence. There's a rebuke in Jesus' words there. And yet, Jesus gives to Thomas the exact sign he demanded. So here's our third observation. Number three, Thomas is rebuked by Jesus for demanding a sign. And then he is given the sign. And we're thinking, Jesus, that's not how you teach someone a lesson. Jesus, you are, you are enabling Thomas here. You can't correct him and give him what he wants. If you're going to correct him and say, bad Thomas, you should not be asking for a sign then you can't go and give him the sign. Here's how that would look in our house. You should not keep nagging me for a popsicle. Stop nagging me for a popsicle. Now, what flavor would you like? Which I kind of like that style of parenting more and more every day. So, as some of you, when I just said that, you thought, well, there's something I kind of like about that. There's something kind of sweet about that. There's something sweet to see here about Jesus. Put yourself in Thomas's shoes. If you're Thomas right now, and Jesus shows up and says what he said to Thomas. If you're Thomas, you just realized that even though you didn't know it, Jesus has been with you. And he has been listening to all of your dumb doubts and demands. That's what you realize if you're Thomas. They were alone right in the room when he said that to the disciples. Jesus was not there. Now Jesus is here and he repeats almost verbatim what Thomas said. So if you're Thomas, you realize that Jesus has been there all along. I mean, it's not like one of the disciples went and tattled to Jesus during the week. Like on Wednesday, one of the disciples, hey, Jesus, come here. You know what Thomas is saying? That's not what happened. So Thomas learns that Jesus was there. He heard his doubts. He heard his demands. Now, that's sweet because that means that and reminds us that Jesus hears his people even when he is not physically present. Jesus hears his people, which is either, for everyone here, either comforting or convicting. At times, for me to hear and be reminded that Jesus is here and he is listening, 
That is the most comforting thing that you could tell me. And there are times when you tell me and remind me that Jesus is here and listening to everything you say. It's convicting, isn't it? He hears. He listens. And I think this is the real sweet part. And then he comes to you, and we're seeing this over and over again in John. And he is often more kind and merciful than you'd expect. I hope you're seeing that. I mean, John is answering the question for you, who is Jesus? And he's telling us a lot about Jesus, and he's focusing a lot. But one of the things that John is careful to show us is that people are over and over and over again surprised at how kind and merciful God is. What would you be expecting to hear if you were Thomas? Probably not what Jesus said. The result of all of this for Thomas is, of course, this, our fourth observation. Number four, Thomas drops his conditions and makes the highest and greatest confession of faith in the entire New Testament. Really. Thomas drops his conditions and makes the highest and greatest confession of faith in the entire New Testament. Read it with me. Jesus said to Thomas in verse 27, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Did you notice what Thomas did not do? Sort of subtle, isn't it? Did you notice what Thomas did not do? He did not touch Jesus' hands. He did not put his hand into Jesus' side, even though he said he would have to do that in order to believe. But for Thomas... Seeing Jesus was more than enough, apparently. He dropped his conditions. And then, commentators agree, he made the highest and greatest confession of faith in the entire New Testament. No one has talked like this to Jesus No one to this point has gotten it right with Jesus like Thomas gets it right. Not yet. When he says, my Lord and my God, that is the highest and greatest confession of faith yet in the New Testament. He does not just say, you are a Lord and a God. He doesn't just say you are the Lord and the God. He doesn't just say my Lord or my God. He says my Lord and my God. Now do you remember our question? Did you bring it with you? John, why did you end with this story? I think we're answering it. 
In the very first verse of John's book, John declares that Jesus was God. He's got the first verse, and now we've got the last verses. In the very first verse, John said, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. It's Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what does it say? Was God. So in the beginning of his book, as John's telling us about Jesus, he says, let me tell you right up front, Jesus is God. But it is not until the last couple verses here that a disciple openly confesses this. My Lord and my God. What a confession. All of us here, If we haven't already, we must come to the same confession as Thomas. To look to Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. This is what Christians mean when they talk about the importance and necessity of a personal confession. It is not enough to believe that Jesus is Lord and God. He must be your Lord and your God. So, young and old here today, whether you're at the beginning of your life or toward the end of your life, the most important question on planet Earth, who is Jesus? The answer from each of us, young and old, must be Jesus is my Lord and my God. Friends, that is what it means to be a Christian. Right here. That is what it means to be a Christian. It is a lot more than saying Jesus is my teacher. It is a lot more than saying Jesus is my example. It's a heck of a lot more than saying Jesus is my friend. He may be your friend and he's your elder brother and he's your teacher and he's your example. But first and foremost, foundationally, primarily, ultimately, Jesus must be. This is what a Christian and only a Christian says. He is my Lord and my God. And if he is my Lord, then I bow down to him and him only. That is exactly what Jesus demands of us. I mean, you cannot read the Bible and see it any other way. Jesus will not let you call him anything else. If you want to call him your teacher, or he was a great moral example, or he was a man with great philosophy or great wisdom, he was one that we should pattern our life after, but he's not my Lord and my God. Jesus does not let you do that. He calls for complete and total allegiance. And either every one of us has to decide. Either Jesus is God 
and we bow down to him, or he is a liar who, as one author said, would make Hitler look sane and modest. True story. Read the life of Jesus. Read the things that he said. Either he is God or he is the worst kind of liar there is. I am God, he said. Give up your life for me, he said. Give up all things. Take up your own cross. I need to be at the center of your life. He is either who he said he was or he is the worst lying egomaniac the world ever produced. You see? So he doesn't let you come in and say, well, he was a great teacher. Well, whatever he is, he's not that. Would you think of any other teacher that way? That had some good things to say in front of your classroom and then at the end they told you, let you in on a secret, that they were God? And they asked if on the way out of class you'd bow down to them? Would you walk away saying, he's a, don't get me wrong, he's a great teacher. But this is, the God stuff is just weird. Would you go back to that class? Would you read those books? We've got to help one another. We've got to help this world. Understand who Jesus is. A Christian believes Jesus is Lord and God. A Christian has kneeled down to him, and Jesus has become the very center of their life. That's a Christian. It's not a box you check. It's not what your parents were. It's not tradition. It's not a moral ethic. It's not a moral standard. It's he is your Lord, and he is your God. So again, young and old. Is Jesus this morning your Lord and your God? If that is something that any of you want to talk about this morning, I'll be up in front after service. I'd love to talk with you. Number five. Thomas is no different than the other disciples. I think Thomas gets a bad rap. We'll see if you agree. So he needed to see to believe. So what? Did you notice that all the disciples needed to see in order to believe? Every single one of them. As far as we can tell, the disciples did not believe Mary when she came and said, I have seen the Lord, any more than Thomas did not believe the ten when they told him, we have seen the Lord. If you look back at verse 8, even John, the author of this book, makes it very clear. He saw and then he believed. Did you notice Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9? He reflects back on it in 1 Corinthians 15. and says, I was the last one to whom Jesus appeared. So Paul had to see and believe over and over and over again. See and believe, see and believe. When Thomas sees, he makes the highest and greatest confession of faith in your Bible. Maybe he should be known as believing Thomas. 
or confessing Thomas. He's got to be in heaven just shaking his head. Like, man, one little doubt. Good night. He's mocking us with our thousands of doubts, and we don't get that label. Poor guy. Give him a hug when you get there, would you? Give him a pat on the back. Let's finish John's story. Listen to verse 29. This is what Jesus says right after Thomas' great confession of faith. Verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? So there's that little rebuke. But here's what is huge for us. So sorry, I broke up that verse. So let me just read it all together. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What's happening here? Well, Jesus has told them that he is very soon, in a matter of weeks, he is ascending to the Father. And when that time comes, and it has, and Jesus ascends to the Father, no one will see him anymore. No one, and when I say that, I mean that literally, no one will lay human eyeballs on him anymore. He is going to ascend to be with the Father. That's where he is now. He is at the right hand of the Father. So a time is coming and has come when no one will have what these disciples had to have. Mary had to have it. The ten had to have it. Thomas had to have it. A time is coming when they won't have that anymore. They won't lay their eyeballs on Jesus. And yet, they still must believe. And they will believe. And not only will they believe, they will be, Jesus says here, blessed. So he's looking at his disciples and saying, you got to see to believe. And so here I am, I love you, I'm gracious. You see and you believe. A time is coming when no one will have what you have. And yet, They still will have to believe. And guess what? They will believe. And guess what? They are blessed in that. We now, and this is what Jesus is talking about, we live by faith and not by sight. We live by faith and not by sight. By sight. Not one of us here has seen Jesus. If you think you have, I do want to talk to you. I I didn't mean that to be a joke. I meant that seriously. I really want to talk to you. And I want to persuade you biblically that you have not seen Jesus. And you sure have taken all the meaning out of this verse, if you say you have. It's the very point Jesus is making. I'm out of here. 
I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, but I'm out of here. You're going to see me again, and what a sight it's going to be when you see me again, but not until then. Now, that wasn't Jesus standing at the foot of your bed. It wasn't him. He's going to be on a white horse. He's going to look like a warrior. He's going to have a sword coming out of his mouth. When we see Jesus. And Jesus says, what a blessing it is to have faith without sight. So I just, as I'm studying this and I'm reading this this week and I'm, I'm thinking about this and here Jesus is saying very clear, blessed, it's a beatitude, blessed, it is good, this is a good thing, this is a good thing for you, what a wonderful place to be, to have faith and not sight. And I was thinking that I'm not sure we agree with that most of the time. I think most of the time... In our struggle and in our battle of faith, we would rather have sight than faith. Faith feels junior varsity and sight feels varsity, right? I want to see Jesus one day, and you will, and it's going to be good. But he, he can't be saying here that it's better. He says we are blessed. Those who have faith without sight are blessed. Jesus does not say, blessed are those who have seen and believed. And I think that's how we think. Wouldn't it be great to see Jesus if only I could see Jesus? Well, that's not what he says here. He doesn't say those who are really blessed are those who have seen me and believed. He says very clearly, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I'm going to give you something to read this week if you'd like to keep thinking through this text. And I hope you all do that. I hope you all do that in the weeks following a sermon. I spend on average about 25 hours a week preparing for this hour. And one of the things I have in mind in addition and primarily to what God just accomplishes in this hour is that you'll have enough and you'll have some things to think about and meditate on and digest throughout the week. If you would like to zoom in on verse 29 this week, that verse I just read, and really consider how we are blessed as those who walk by faith and not by sight, I would encourage you to go online, find a sermon, you can read it for free, by Charles Spurgeon. He did a sermon on this text, and the name of the sermon was Faith Without Sight. And in that sermon... He points out the ways that we still try to live by sight and how we tend to be unthankful for this life of faith and want to see more instead of having more faith. And he encourages us in that sermon to not look for, to not depend on things like visions or voices or ecstatic experiences or proofs or special providences. And he points out, and I've seen it to be true, that many Christians, we get caught up wanting more than what Jesus has given us. And we forget that we are blessed to be those who do not yet see more, but live by faith. And he, he works that out. 
How blessed we are to live by faith and not by sight. Think about the things that we want to see. Sometimes they're conditions we even have. God, if only you would do this. If only you would give me a a special word. If only you would give me a a special vision. If only you would come down and just talk to me personally, visibly, physically. If if only I could have this experience like I used to have when I was a, a new believer. If only I could have just this one little piece of proof or evidence. This is just, it's a stumbling block for me. And if you could just do that, I think it would help. God, if if only, and we're guilty of this often, if only, God, you would just come and answer this prayer in this way, if only you would bring this, and if we're real spiritual here, we use the word providence, God, if you would just bring this providence, I'd be so helped in my faith. Providence, a word that just means God working out his plan throughout history in your life so that everything that happens in your life is according to God's providence. But Christians only use that word providence at certain times. Like it's all providence. But we think things, don't we? We're tempted to live by sight and not by faith when we say, God, if when we're sick or when our loved ones are sick, God, if you would only come and And heal this person. And heal them miraculously. And then sometimes it happens. And the person is healed. And we say things like, what a providence of God. And we say our faith is bolstered by what we see. What about all the days you were healthy? What about every minute you didn't get sick? Is that not also the providence of God? That which is maybe not seen so dramatically. We have no money. We we don't have enough food. And this is wonderful. Some of you have this. We open the door and there's food. And we say things like, what a provision of God. God's provision. Were you aware of his provision all those days you had plenty? You're driving down the freeway. You've had this thought. And you, you see a car accident. That ju- have you ever had that happen? That just happened. That just happened. Like within seconds before you got there. And you think, if I hadn't taken that extra sip of coffee this morning, I would have been in that car accident. Oh, Lord, you direct my steps. And you're right. You're right. You should thank God for that. It is his providence. But what about every day on your way to work where he kept you from the accident? We don't think about these things. We don't remember these things. We don't consider how God is being faithful every single day, how he is providing every single day. And we say, God, would you come and give me a vision or give me a voice or give me a prophetic word or give me a new providence or bring me a miracle? And he's saying back to you, what do you think I've been doing? Your whole life I've been keeping you out of trouble. 
Your whole life I've been blessing you. You'd have nothing to be happy about. You'd have nothing to smile about. You'd have no joy in your heart. And I give you second after second after second, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, year after year. I'm just loading you up with my faithfulness. And you want more? What a blessing it is to live by faith and not by sight. To have God work so miraculously in us and through us and bring such comfort by the Holy Spirit that here we are. This is crazy. We don't even see Jesus and think about the things we believe. The world looks at you, Christians, and say, what is the matter with you, Christian? How can you believe that? They assume you're not intelligent. They assume you're not experienced enough. They assume you've got problems in your life and you need crutches of religion to prop you up. And some of them may, Lord willing, take the time to get to know you and find out that you're none of those things. And the biggest hearts and the greatest minds and the best people have been Christians throughout history. How can you explain that? And they've made Jesus, this homeless guy from Nazareth, who was killed on a cross, the centerpiece of their life. It's a miracle. Blessed are those who don't see any of that. And yet, every day, their faith is in Christ. What's the greater miracle? Jesus walking through locked doors? That's nothing. What's he showing the disciples? The real miracle is Jesus Christ going through the locked door of your heart and changing you from the inside out forever. We are blessed to live by faith and not by sight. In that sermon, here's one thing Charles Spurgeon says. Probably there is no statement of human history which is better sustained by evidence than this fact that Jesus of Nazareth who hung upon the cross and died did afterwards rise again from the dead. That's an amazing thing to say. And I think he's right. There's nothing that has more evidence for it than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you need only look to the lives that were given for him, saying to their death, we saw him, we touched him. He goes on. Now the time of eyewitnesses is over. More evidence would be superfluous. And we are now in the mid-ocean of faith. The Lord knows that sight interferes with faith. And therefore, he does not give us a mixture of the two. We do not walk by sight and faith, but we walk by faith, not by sight. To let us occasionally see would, in fact, remove us out of the realm of faith and bring us down from the high position of believers to the low platform of sightseers. Adieu, therefore, for a while, O sight. Now, in conclusion, I'd like to ask and answer the following question. How do we come to this faith of Thomas? Try and be even more practical here. 
How do we come to this faith of Thomas? Or how do we strengthen the faith that we already have? So for some of you who are here today and you are not believers, how do you find faith? For those of you who are here and are believers, how does this story of Thomas encourage your faith? For some of you, you are a Christian, but you are often worried or angry or discouraged or depressed. And you know the problem, don't you? It is possible, isn't it? I'd ask for a show of hands, but I know which hands would be up. All of them. It is possible to be a Christian and be worried and be anxious. To be angry, to be bitter, to be resentful, to be deeply discouraged, to be depressed. You know what the problem is, Christian, when you find yourself in that. The problem is always a matter of faith. In those times, you don't believe, really believe, that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. So I need to be encouraged in my faith. Because in these moments of weakness, or in these days, or months, or years of weakness, I struggle to believe that Jesus really is who he said he is. So help us, Thomas. I'll just say two things which amount to following Thomas' example here. Number one, following his example negatively Unlike Thomas, we should listen to the apostles. We should listen to the apostles. If Thomas had that week back, you know he would. Unlike Thomas, we should listen to the apostles. We do not come, please hear this, we do not come to believe in Jesus by seeing him. That is not how we come to believe in Jesus. We come to see Jesus by believing in Him. Would be a better way to say it. And we come to believe in Jesus by hearing His Word. The words like this of the apostles. So please, I'm pleading with you. Unlike Thomas, listen to the words of the apostles. Read Matthew, read Mark, read Luke, read John, and believe what you read about Jesus. And don't hold out or wait for anything else. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If you want to come to faith in Jesus, you need to hear his word and believe his word. We do not come to faith by seeing but by hearing the word of God. So if you are here today and you are holding out for some special evidence or experience or voice or proof or vision, stop it. Stop. It'll never happen. You're in the wrong century. You must hear the word of God and believe. Now we can imitate Thomas positively. So secondly and finally, like Thomas, 
like Thomas, we should see how patient Jesus has been with us. We should see his scars. We should drop our conditions and confess, my Lord and my God. How patient has Jesus been with me? He has seen all of my stupid doubts. He has seen all of my worries. He has seen all of my fears. He knows all of my flaws. You know the same is true for you. Oh, no one knows you like Jesus knows you. He knows you better than those who you would say know you best know you. He knows you better than you know yourself. Don't we all have things about us that we're happy for people to see and things about us that we're very unhappy for people to see? Things we hope nobody ever sees. Well, have no doubt with this. Jesus sees it all. He knows all of your flaws. He knows the superficial ones. He knows the, one, he knows the ones that are deeply embedded. He knows what they've led you to do. He knows what they've led you to say. He knows the mistakes and the failures that you're still going to have. He knows all of your flaws, and yet he is still here. And he is patient, like he was with Thomas. We should see his scars the way Thomas did. In other words, we have, unlike any other religion in the world, a God with wounds. Think about this. We have a God with wounds. We have a God who has suffered. And we have a God with wounds. We have a God who has suffered for our good. Be encouraged in your faith or find faith. And then finally, like Thomas, we should drop our conditions. There can't be any ifs in this relationship with Jesus Christ. If only this, if only that. Jesus, if only you would help this situation. Jesus, if only you would bring me this job. Jesus, if only you would heal this illness. Jesus, if only you would take this sin from me. Jesus, if only you would intervene in this way. You realize when you're doing that that it's not Jesus that's your Savior, it's the condition. You want that more than you want Jesus. And he becomes a means to get what you really want. That's not how you want to live. That's not, like Thomas' confession, my Lord and my God. We can't ultimately want anything other than Jesus. Anything else will not die for you. In fact, Tim Keller says it will demand that you die for it. No, instead, we should be Christians who cry out with Thomas, my Lord and my God, I invite all of you to say that this morning. To be able to say with Peter, and I'll close with this verse. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, I hope this is true for you. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for inspiring John to write these words. We know as we read these words of John that he's, we're reading what John wanted us to read, but more importantly, we're reading what you wanted us to read. So thank you for bringing to his mind and to his memory a story like this so that we can learn from it. God, I pray that there would be someone or someones here this morning who would find faith for the first time, who would come to you and would, would find themselves saying, Jesus is my Lord and my God. And for those of us who are here who have professed this faith, help us to live accordingly. And God, I pray that for the many that could be here who have made a confession like this, but who are not actually living as if it were true, I pray that they would be choked with conviction. God, I pray that they would come to see the, the ways that they are not submitting to you, that they are not honoring you, the ways that they are making an idol of you and worshiping the idol rather than accepting you for who you are and who you say you are. So we pray for these things this morning, God, knowing that as you promise, your word will be effective as you are faithful. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.